but it turned out Thornburg was right. They did a hike up and over another ridge, and they found whitebark pine and foxtail pine. And when they got to uh, Little Duck Lake, they laid out their map, and they said, you know, within if we're going to create a little arbitrary border, but within this square mile, we've got 17 species of conifers. And uh, that was when the Miracle Mile was born. That was in the early 70s. Welcome to the Backcountry Beat, the podcast about nature, adventure, and stewardship from Backcountry Press, streaming to you from a redwood forest in Humboldt County, California. Hey folks, if you like trees, especially conifers, and extra especially if you like those conifers served up rare or growing in the Klamath Mountains, perhaps with a sprinkle of adventure and a garnish of controversy, then this is the podcast episode for you. I'm Allison from Backcountry Press, and thank you for being here. We have something kind of different for you today. We're sharing out an episode from the wildly entertaining and informative podcast, Completely Arbitrary, with Casey Clapp and Alex Krausen. This episode is an interview with someone near and dear to my heart, Michael Kaufman. He's my husband and also the author of a slew of books, including a few favorites about conifers. There is actually a reason why he's affectionately called Conifer Man, spelled with two N's. In the lively discussion that follows, you'll hear about the Manzanita Conifer Connection, the relationship of conifers to the Western landscape. You'll find out if foxtail pines are truly a California endemic or if they have made their way across the border to Oregon. You'll learn what makes the Klamath Mountains so unique. And have you heard of the Miracle Mile? you'll hear the story behind this legendary spot, which is home to the most diverse, temperate conifer forest on Earth. And a whole bunch more stuff as well. If you like this conversation, be sure to check out Completely Arbitrary's January 12th episode all about a favorite endemic conifer of the Klamath Mountains, the Brewer Spruce. Enjoy! Hey everyone, welcome to the Arboretum. Uh, we're happy to have you. We are. We have another fun, fun special Arboretum episode this week. It's going to be hosted by me, Casey, but we have a special guest. Um, Michael Kaufman is here. Some of you might have heard of Michael's work. Um, I've talked about it with a couple of um, his books. I've referenced uh, Conifers of the Pacific Slope and uh, the kind of uniqueness of our flora and fauna and my sort of love for what Michael has done in sort of a uh, plant explorer sort of fashion. Um, but that is what we're going to be doing today. So without further ado, Michael Kaufman, welcome to the Arboretum. Hey, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here, guys. Well, we're pretty excited uh, about the opportunity. I know I certainly am. And this is a, um, uh, you You reached out and said, hey, I'd love to talk to you guys about a subject. Um, you also have a new book coming out, which we'll, we'll talk about as well. Um, but before we go any further, I wanted to kind of get you to tell everyone listening, if they are not familiar with you, what it is that you do and a little bit about who you are. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So I consider myself an educator. I've been in the world of public education for over 25 years now. I've taught environmental education. I've taught in the classroom in middle school. But I've all I, my top level goal in life is to connect people with the natural world, and I found a variety of different avenues to do that. Several of which include writing these books. I've written 
Um, I think I've got five books now. I started with a book called Conifer Country, and that explored the conifers of the Klamath Mountains, and we'll dive into the Klamath Mountains a little bit here today. But that was my first passion, was really trying to understand the diversity of the Klamath Mountains through the eyes of the conifers. And as I was writing that book, I was invited by professors at Cal Poly Humboldt, which is, I live here in Humboldt County, Northern California, Mm -hmm. to turn this book into my master's degree. And as I was taking classes, uh, learning more about forest pathogens and redwoods and everything else that uh, I was exposed to, I was working on conifers of the Pacific Slope. So I put those two books out in 2012 and 2013, respectively. And then I wrote a book about manzanitas, a field guide to manzanitas, because every time I was in the field looking at conifers, at least in California, and also a few places elsewhere, manzanitas were always growing in the understory, and that fascinated me. So I wanted to learn more about manzanitas, put that book together with some of the world experts, uh, including Tom Parker and Mike Basie. And then I just recently published a book called California Desert Plants, and that explores the amazing diversity of Uh, plants through the different um, environments in which they live in the California deserts. And then I'm also very excited because in two weeks, my book on the Klamath Mountains and Natural History will arrive at my doorstep from the printer. And uh, this has been almost a 10-year project. Uh, We have 34 authors uh, two editors, myself and Justin Garwood, and it's the, the Klamath Mountains are are my favorite mountain range on Earth, and uh, we're going to explore a little bit more about why here today. Yeah, we sure are. That is, uh, you you seem to me like the kind of person who just kind of sees something, becomes interested, and just goes full bore for it. Where you're like, yeah, look at that. There's manzanitas everywhere. I wonder, and then end up writing a book about the the diversity of manzanitas in this area. Can you uh, do you know off the top of your head how many species of manzanita there are? Yeah, manzanitas are wild. So there's 105 taxa. So that means species and subspecies. Yeah, and um, all of them grow within the California floristic province. So that includes southern Oregon and uh, northern Baja California, and then basically most of California, excluding the deserts. And there's only eight of those taxa that that live, any, that live outside of the California Floristic Province, including um, one, actually, so I said that wrong, 104 of the 105 are within the California Floristic Province. Gotcha. One lives on a mountain in Guatemala. Uh, it was transported there by birds. But just an amazing uh, story of adaptability within the California Floristic Province, adapting to the soils, the fire regimes, and the summer drought. So it's really a fascinating group of plants. Yeah, it is. And for those of you who may not be familiar, manzanitas are in the Ericaceae family, closely related to uh, plants like the rhododendron and the madrone. In fact, a lot of people thought they were madrones because they they have the same kind of peely bark and very similar flowers and things. Exactly. Yeah, they're pretty closely related to madrones. Yeah. Now, with um, with the manzanita, you were you you mainly found, uh, as you said, that you were searching for conifers, and this is where my heart flutters. I am a conifer fanatic. I, I love them more than any other kind of tree, and I'm not bashful about being biased in that regard. 
But um, one thing that I think I'm, I think I could, I could say that is a fair description is that you are also first and foremost a conifer enthusiast. That you are. That's kind of your 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 base passion. Is that is that fair to say? Definitely, definitely. Okay. I see the world through the eyes of conifers. Is one way I like to say it. I mean, they're just so fascinating. In in case you know this stuff, but but you know they're 350 million year old lineage. They've adapted to the world over deep time. I, I grew up in Virginia in the Appalachian mm-hmm. and the Piedmont and the Appalachian Mountains. And, and there's some conifers there. But when I moved to California, my mind was blown. Um, I mean, it was almost like every mountaintop had some different species and yeah. the biogeography across California and even up into uh, the Cascades and, and across the Rocky Mountains and Nevada, you know, what a Great Basin. The, the You can really see the story of plant biogeography through these conifers and there's not that many of them right so if we think about conifers in a worldly sense there's something like 660 species Mm -hmm. um and we compare that to flowering plants which are shoo you know whatever it is it's it increases every day right i was gonna say plants are described last i remember like two hundred fifty thousand or something like that right off the top of my head yeah yeah probably three hundred thousand if not four hundred thousand that haven't been described yet but but yet you know conifers have this i mean the story is is wild right so the asteroid hit 60 million 66 million years ago yeah and uh that shifted the biogeography of phytogeography of plant life on earth right so Mm -hmm. conifers went into decline flowering plants arose but yet the conifers still cover about 30 percent of the forested land on earth even though there's not as many species so they're they still do really well in in certain areas and those areas are often say north of the 45th parallel Mm -hmm. on mountaintops south of that area on poor soils and then you have the um, temperate rainforest, Pacific Northwest temperate rainforest, which is just this, you know, conifer wonderland right along the coast. So, so many stories, so many great uh, species. Yeah. And I was, uh, I just picked up, um, we talked to um, Ian Allen recently, who is the uh, curator of the uh, Royal Botanic Gardens in Sydney, Australia. Um, we talked about the Wollamai pine and... Mm-hmm. Um, Ian was uh, encouraged me that I go buy a book kind of about that that story, which is another conifer, which um, we we don't even have time to get into today, but a a wacky conifer. And then I also was I was just looking through on uh, I think a books is where I was, and they also said, hey, other people recommended this book, and I started reading um, the Natural History of Conifers by Alios Farjan, and mm-hmm. that uh, I he noted that of all those those. Um, conifers and that distribution you just noted, the Pacific Ocean is ringed by conifers in this really uniquely specific way, where on the west coast of North America, the east coast of uh, Asia, and then down through the kind of high peaks in South America, all have this really interesting giant, like, I think he said something like 60 or so percent, maybe 80, I can't remember the number, are all right there around that area, which tells you something about kind of where these trees have found this refuge or lots of refuges, I guess, in this instance. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's 50 to 60 percent of the world's conifers are around the Pacific Rim. And um, the the way I like to think about it is about 10 percent of the world's conifers are in California, Oregon, and Washington. Yeah. And 5 percent of the world's conifers are in the Klamath Mountains. That is so we have a, a, that's so amazing. Yeah, amazing diversity. 
Yeah. So um, in that regard, um, so you, uh, the big thing that kind of set you off was going and hiking and finding these conifers. So in in all the books that I've read or, or heard of so far, um, you go out and find these plants. That's kind of a thing that you do. So I followed your um, your conifers of the Pacific Slope where you say, hey, if you want to see these trees, go here. If you want to see these trees, go here. And had like specific destinations and so how was it for you to go out and, and kind of hunt down all these unique populations, either through the literature or physically walking and saying, there it is, the, McNab- the McNabb Cypress, and I can identify it like this and then move on. What was that like going from Baja, California, all the way up through BC? It's been a life mission. It's pretty, it's been a big passion project for me. And, it, and I didn't understand that it would become... Uh, what it was when I first moved to California. I lived mm-hmm. in Southern California and uh, Southern Sierra Nevada and the transverse ranges when I was teaching outdoor education. And I used to spend my weekends uh, climbing mountains in the desert or mountains in the Sierra or the transverse range. And, and, and like I mentioned earlier, I'd get to the top and I would find these isolated populations of conifers. And I started to fall in love with them uh, when I did that. And then I moved to Humboldt County to get my teaching credential and uh, I went out into the Siskiyou Mountains. I took a trip in mid-February to a pass that was 4,000 feet. And I thought, oh, you know, 4,000 feet, I'll be able to get over this pass. Well, before I knew it, I was in waist-deep snow. I was going to say. And and, uh, wandering through these conifer forests where I didn't recognize a thing. And I thought that I knew my trees uh, naively, I guess, at that point. And that's really what piqued my interest in conifer uh, mapping and biogeography here in uh, Northwest California. And between Conifer Country writing that book and um, other work that I've been able to do with the California Native Plant Society and the Forest Service, I've been able to map all the rare conifers in uh, the Klamath Mountains, including whitebark pine, Pacific silver fir, uh, Alaska yellow cedar, Calotropsis nucatensis. And just, you know, it's been a real passion to just kind of begin to understand their ecology and then pick places that nobody knew that these species might be go visit them and then usually be right and find them and that was just uh that's just fun it's fun stuff it is like that's that's kind of the amazing thing where you you get to know a plant so well that you can predict where it's going to be based on the location side of sort of geography and height and all these different attributes and then go out there and actually find one that that has to be so satisfying yeah, it was great. The White Bark Pine Project launched me into this uh, sort of ecologist career path in the summertime. Yeah. And uh, it was basically finding mountaintops across Northern California and trying to get there, whether by car or by foot. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and then really defining the ecology of That's, that species in Northern California. It's, it's just good stuff. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I had a question for you, and this is a, a specific, unique question. I was talking with a nurseryman up here, um, a friend of mine, uh, Sean Hogan is his name. He works with um, the nursery, Cystis Nursery, and he constantly brings up new trees from Southern California, Arizona, and the sort of mountain west that are going to be climate-adapted species. And he also loves to find trees, kind of how you do, where like find this one rare population and kind of expand the range of certain species. Yeah. And uh, there is a, a legend uh, that there is a um, foxtail pine grove in Oregon, just across that political boundary line. 
And he isn't sure. Um, I think it's a guy named Callahan who claimed to find it. And he's not sure if it, was, if it was planted or if there's an actual grove there. So I'm curious if you know uh, if you've found this grove that just reaches over that line so that we can add it to our, our Trees of Oregon books. Well, I, I have to admit, Casey, there's there's a lot of history with this story and me. <laughs> yeah, um, I've lo- I've looked for the trees. They're not where they were reported. No. And um, yeah, there. What's what's interesting about where Frank said that he found these trees is it is a, a type of habitat that you would predict that foxtail pine would be. Mm-hmm. As the crow flies, it's maybe thirty miles from the northern range extension. Um, yeah. But I think what happened is is Frank misidentified, um, strangely enough, maybe he was tired, but misidentified Brewer Spruce when he was up there. Because the Brewer Spruce, oh. it's a it's a, one of our endemics. Um, for whatever reason, on that mountaintop, they have this bottle brush, really tightly compacted growth. They're not as droopy as normal. Gotcha. So that's my only prediction. So anyway, I don't think they're in Oregon. I've I've walked through that whole area along the Oregon border. We call it mm-hmm. the Siskiyou Crest, and it's serpentine soils, and that's the stuff that pines, particularly uh, the endemic foxtail pine of the Klamath, enjoy. But I just don't think the mountains are high enough anymore. They only ah. reach about 6,000 feet, and foxtails are typically 6,500 feet or taller. Ah, gotcha. Well, thank you, thank you for finally putting that to rest. Uh, I, I appreciate that, although I do have a, a small bit of disappointment. <laughs> well, I, you know, I could be wrong, but man, I've looked. So that's my yeah. favorite tree too. So right? I, I okay. don't mess around when it comes to foxtails. Excellent. I just found, uh, not found, but I went up to Mount Eddy uh, this uh, about a couple weeks ago um, to oh, find sweet. them. Because that was, again, off of your book's recommendation. And it was uh, it was a delight because that's the one tree, um, one of the trees that I didn't have in a collection that I've um, been trying to work on over the last several years. And so I was able to finally go up and find that tree and add one little cone to the collection. So it was very exciting to actually see them because they, the fox pines the the bristlecone pines have this such i don't know this air of in incredibleness and i i don't know exactly any other way to describe it they just feel ancient you know yeah oh yeah it's uh, an, an amazing lineage in that mount eddy grove it's a 200 acre grove of foxtails that's the largest stand contiguous stand in the klamath mountains so you yeah. have to see see them in all their glory god they're just beautiful it was really just they're just beautiful trees um, well, so one thing uh, that we kind of danced around a little bit. So you, you've written, recently written and edited a book um, called The Klamath Mountains, A Natural History. And I've been going through it over the last couple of weeks. And my God, this is an exhaustive book. It, this is not just about trees. This isn't just about plants. This is about everything. So give us a quick rundown of what you've spent and what the rest of these authors have spent. You said almost the last 10 years putting together. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by natural histories. Um, It's an interesting niche to write a book about a natural history because it has to, there has to be some sort of definable boundary, right? Yeah. And when when I grew up on the East Coast, it wasn't very easy because the ecosystems are so vast and broad. But when you get to the West, um, you can compartmentalize things. And in my first experience with a true natural history that I fell in love with was one for the Sierra Nevada. Mm, and the Sierra Nevada is defined by granite and, you know, a certain climate within the California Floristic Province. And I mean, I think there's five or six people that have written natural histories for the Sierra and rightfully so. It's a beautiful mountain range. But 
nobody had ever done one for the Klamath Mountains. And through my work writing Conifer Country, I just wanted to know more. I wanted to know everything. The, the diversity of life in the Klamath Mountains is unparalleled. And, and this occurs for a variety of reasons. One is its proximity to the coast in the, in the Pacific, mm-hmm. uh, which keeps it, it cool and um, moist, particularly on the west side of the range. But the Klamath Mountains are defined by geology, and it's an ancient geology. Um, the, Calif- uh, the Klamath Mountain geomorphic province is something that has formed over about 150 million years. Uh, some of the rock that makes up that mountain range was formed even earlier in ophiolitic sequences under the ocean. And ophiolites are this uh, strange sort of volcanism that occurs deep down, and then it gets accreted onto the continent, and then yeah. it's inhospitable to a lot of plant life, but the, pl- the plants that can live on it are often endemic. They grow nowhere else on Earth. So there's mm. this this fascinating level of um, biodiversity created by these unique soils, this unique climate, um, but also the proximity the Klamath Mountains have to other mountain ranges. So there's an influence from the north, the Pacific Northwest. We're really at the southern extent of the Pacific Northwest here based on I like to think the southern range extension of certain conifers like western red cedar, Sitka spruce, western mm-hmm. hemlock. But we also have an influence from the Great Basin, um, Oregon and, and uh, Nevada plants come in on the east side of the Klamath Mountains. And then we have the influence of the California Floristic Province uh, at the northern range extension. So it's this real crossroads. And plants are just one way to see this diversity. Uh, the other amazing critters that live here, we have about 70 different taxa of snails, which uh, is fascinating. Nobody That's had really amazing. written about that before, so that was no. a lot of research went into that. And then, I mean, the real amazing story that flies under the radar is our amphibian diversity. Yeah. Uh, uh, we have endemics. I think it's five or six endemic salamanders. I should know that. But, wow. Uh, amazing diversity of life, and it's all sculpted by this unique positioning of the Klamath Mountains uh, in Western North America, like I mentioned. And because of that, we have what I like to say is one of the most, probably the most diverse temperate coniferous forest on the planet. That's, uh, yeah, I also would, would fully stand by that. And I haven't done the research probably quite as much as you have, but in so far what I have seen, um, this, this kind of, this area reaches the pinnacle, especially if you include, um, where where we're at but then if you just expand that out ever so slightly to the north and south you get this 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 amazing new diversity so if you just say the pacific northwest is kind of a a broader area with this heart in the middle that is the Klamath ranges then you end up getting this wild amount of species and i know you know you can't keep moving it out to say yeah you know the pacific northwest if you include montana and all these other places you got to draw the line somewhere, but it is. I, I I agree. I think the the conifer diversity is really what sets this apart in terms of, in my opinion, the the tree uh, specialness. But before we go too far, could you give us a quick um, rundown of where exactly we're talking about? Um, what are the Klamath Mountains in terms of geographical area? Yeah, it's 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 difficult to to speak about because it's so isolated and rural that. Many people don't know these places, but it's basically mm. from coastal northern and northern California and southwest Oregon, northwest California, southwest Oregon. Um, we do have a bit of the coast range um, 
between the Klamath Mountains and the ocean, depending on where you are, it can be anywhere from 30 to 10 miles. Gotcha. Um, and and it, the Klamath Mountains extend north towards the Umpqua. They don't quite get to the Umpqua Basin in Oregon, but um, like around Grants Pass, a little bit north mm-hmm. of Grants Pass. So if, you're, gotcha. if you have traveled I-5, you actually notice the transition out of um, the Klamath Mountains because that rock type shifts to more of the um, coast range and, and cascade uh, influence. And then I-5 is actually a pretty good boundary down through Oregon and in, if we're traveling south into California. Gotcha. Um, like uh, Ashland is right on the edge of the Klamath Mountains. Basically, the Cascades sort of erupted and flowed on top of the Klamath along the I-5 corridor. So the Klamath are under the Cascades through there, but it's Cascade rock. Um, and then when you hit Mount Shasta and Weed in, in Northern California, you you dissect um, the Klamath and the Cascades right there at Mount Eddy where you climbed. And gotcha. then, uh, you know, you in, enter the Central Valley and the Klamath Mountains extend a little bit further south to about Corning, um, but more more towards the west. So it's this piece of, of, of rock, of variety of rocks about the size of Virginia is what I like to say. That's where I'm from. So. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it makes it easy for you to kind of conceptualize that. So. Yep. So all of these things kind of come together. So you you noted that there are kind of these several different fingers of flora and fauna coming from the northeast, the northwest, and the southeast and the southwest. They all come together on this uh, this rock type, which is unique. And so what is it that makes it exactly unique, um, at least in terms of the the chemicals? And I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular. Well, are, if you, are you thinking about the serpentine rock that I mentioned yeah, earlier? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So ser- serpentine. This is that ophiolitic stuff that I was mentioning. It's it's a complex story, but but basically these um, serpentine rocks, and we have the largest outcrops of serpentine rocks in North America here mm-hmm. uh, between uh, Northern California and Southern Oregon. But they are high in heavy metals like nickel and magnesium, so that they've often been pursued as spots to extract. I was going to say, this, that usually this rock. You, you think mine right then. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, if you're isolated enough, the Klamath Mountains are really steep and often inaccessible. So a lot of these places have remained untouched, thankfully. Yeah. And um, due to this depauperate soil, the plants that grow there are almost always conifers with a manzanita understory. <laughs> There's a few um, flowering uh other fly, like there, we have an endemic oak, the Saddler's oak, that enjoys some serpentine every once in a while, and huckleberry oak, Quercus vexinifolium. But basically, these this is a conifer wonderland, and um, things like uh, incense cedar, love serpentine, Port Orford cedar, which is a near Klamath Mountain endemic, love the serpentine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, there's a variety of reasons. The lack of competition that I mentioned earlier is a big one. And conifers just do a really good job of dealing with uh, poor sites. You know, yeah. they have these mycorrhizal relationships with with fungi that help them with nutrient absorption. So the 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 um, serpentines really define uh, a lot of the Klamath Mountains. And where you were on Mount Eddy, that's in the eastern side of the range. Those are some of the most ancient serpentines of upwards of three hundred million years ago that that rock was formed. And I mentioned wow. the Klamath Mountains are about one hundred fifty million years. That's because this rock was then, like I mentioned, thrown kind of on top of the continent. Yeah. And then there's also this influence of the these island arcs that form these these volcanic islands 
Mm-hmm. And um, if you've ever been to the Blue Mountains of Northern Oregon, there's yeah. a connection there with the Klamath Mountains um, in the formation of that uh, similar rock type. So it's kind of this mix mash of all sorts of things that have been formed at different times and, and now thrown together. And that's often why it's called the Klamath Knot. Oh yeah, like in like K N O T, where everything's yes, just K-N-O-T, all there, yeah. smashed together. Yeah. So and so, what what this all comes uh, kind of ends up creating is endemic, is endemic plant. So real quick, give us a definition of what endemic means. Sure. So there's a couple types of endemic plants, or a couple types of endemism. There's paleoendemics, and paleo means ancient, right? So we've yeah. A great example, and I'll I'll stick to the conifers here, but we can talk about some flowering plants after. Who but a great example them? is is the Brewer spruce. Okay. And the Brewer spruce used to have a range much broader across Western North America. There's fossil evidence from Nevada and Idaho, um, and and what has happened over time is as climates have shifted, the the climate that we still have in the Klamath Mountains today mimics this more ancient climate of of moist, um, you know. These these pockets where uh, it might it's also dry, right? But we have this influence of the California floristic province and drying mm-hmm. out in the summer. We don't get rain here for a couple of months. Um, well, much rain. We we occasionally get thunderstorms, so we don't get like the the storms that we get in the winter don't happen in the summer. Yeah. And so this the Brewer spruce has more or less retracted its range into the Klamath Mountains only. I see. And that's a that's an ancient endemic, right? So it's a it's a plant that that grows nowhere else on Earth. Um, it used to grow much more broadly, and now we call it a Klamath Mountain endemic. Now, yeah. and there's also neoendemics, and these are neo means newer, right? So, uh, on these serpentine landscapes in particular, it's a great example. We have uh, species that are arising more recently in time. So, maybe it's over the last 10,000 years since the end of the Pleistocene when the climate shifted again. And through isolation, on, say, a specific outcrop of serpentine like Mount Eddy. Mount Eddy's mm-hmm. a, a great example of this. You have these um, foxtail pines. There's also a polymodium that grows up there, the Mount Eddy sky pilot, a beautiful mountain, high mountain flower. Uh, only It's the only place on Earth that flower grows, and it's been isolated there. There's another population of polymodium on Mount Shasta, but they're wow. not swapping genes anymore, right? So this... Yeah. Um, it's an endemic to the Klamath and specifically Mount Eddy. So that's the the story of the endemism and a uh, brief story anyway. Yeah, gotcha. And that is, um, so one question I kind of had that we I kind of touched on for a second earlier is um, kind of how you would define endemism in, term, uh, in terms of a, a space where if you take the Klamath and you say that that's where we're going to define the space, um, Versus saying like California or like we have certain species that grow only in Japan. You say, oh, it's endemic to Japan. Um, so I'm curious where where the, kind of that line is drawn. If you say, oh, the Ponderosa pine is endemic to North America, it doesn't quite ring as true as saying like to the Klamath <laughs> Mountains. So is there like a certain line that you would draw or some kind of definitional uh, point? Yeah, that's a great question. There's actually a whole course on that at uh, Cal Poly Humboldt. <laughs> How do you define endemism and rarity? Yeah. Uh, and it's a it's a biogeography course. Obviously, you know, an island would be a really easy way to to draw that boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it is kind of up to your own interpretation, right? So we do take some liberties and define the Klamath Mountains by rock, and we're able to say, all right, within these boundaries, uh, we have 
these endemic plants, or maybe it's an endemism on a mountaintop. But you're right, you don't really want to go and say, oh, you know, the and the ponderosa pine i mean you could say endemic to the west right because that helps yeah. people get an idea but it's more like uh the ponderosa pine only lives in western north america something like that yeah exactly you just so, the the, yeah. the terminology just changes ever so discreetly but i would say when you speak of endemism it's typically on a smaller scale right and yeah you kind of get to define that scale but uh but yeah Excellent. good question well, so in that regard, then, how, how many species are endemic to, um, to the Klamath Range as we have defined it, as you defined it um, in your book? Yeah, so, so that's a good question, and it's a difficult one to answer, and it's something that um, I'm working on with a professor at Cal Poly now to try to figure out how many endemic plants we have within okay. the Klamath Mountains. But if we think about it, we, so the answer is we don't know that answer. But gotcha. in general, there's about... Uh, 3,500, considered 3,500 vascular plant taxa within the Klamath Mountains, so that's species and subspecies. Um, but within that, we have um, conifers, and the con- there's a 32 endemic, I'm sh- sorry, not endemic, 32 conifer species within the Klamath Mountains. Wow. And um, if we look on a smaller scale, uh, say the Josephine Ophiolite of Northern California, we know that there are 70 to 72 endemic flowering plants to that one sort of rock outcrop. That one so, rock you know, outcrop. we've, we've sort of narrowed it down in certain areas, but we don't really know the whole scale of, we really don't even know how many plant species there are in the Klamath, but there are some, we've come up with that 3,500 as an estimate. Okay. I've, I have a, a couple books like wildflowers of the Pacific Northwest. And, um, a lot of the books that talk about the, the plants, are have kind of just glossed over the siskiyous of southern oregon because they're like eh, it's just there's a lot down there we're just going to focus on the rest <laughs> of the the whole state and i i always thought that was kind of funny that everyone kind of has the same the same kind of response that you're talking about where it's like well we have you know a, a bunch but there's very few people that actually like have to wade into those 3500 trees you know or plants rather. yeah it's, there's a lot of diversity we have a book wildflowers of the klamath mountains that i mm-hmm. i helped um, put together and wow. we only cover 600 flowering plants. And I mean, there's, it's, it's at least twice that you, if you took it into the field, you know, yeah. for just the flower, these are just the flowering thing, you know, this, the, the perennials. So gotcha. anyway, yeah. So you also have, um, so mainly we'll, we'll stick back to the conifers here. So if you are, um, talking about our endemic conifers or conifers that maybe they're not endemic, but they, they grow here more than anywhere else and kind of maybe have fingers that grow up and out of this region. Um, you said we have 32 conifers in, in this area alone. Is that, that's right? Yep. 32 species. 32 species. And um, that would that doesn't necessarily include subspecies that could be could be elsewhere. Do you know of any uh, that are like actively speciating? Well, yeah, the foxtail pine's a good example. In the, in the north, we have the Klamath foxtail pine, it's Pinus balfouriana, subspecies balfouriana. And then the southern Sierra Nevada, um, they call it the Sierra foxtail pine, um, Pinus balfouriana, subspecies Australia. And they basically, they've been separated we believe for about a million years. Wow. So the, the, then the question arises, are they two different species? And, mm-hmm. you know, this, then you get into this lumping and splitting and how do you uh, taxon- taxonomically yeah. uh, define a species, but they're pretty similar. You know, there's some differences based on bark color, uh, a little bit about the cone um, scale length and things like that, but they inhabit the same environments in both mm. uh, of these two mountain ranges. 
So that's one that's, you know, they're, they're, it's separating itself out, and, uh, and it has been for a long time. Um, and then we also have uh, some, a couple of uh, cypresses, which the cypress story in the West is, it, it could either be frustrating or inspiring, depending on how you like to think about it. Some people claim we might only have a couple of species. Other people claim we might have up to 10 species. And again, this is uh, happening because speciation is occurring. And in the Klamath Mountains, we have uh, the the Modoc or the Baker Cypress, mm-hmm. and um, that one is again isolated on these serpentine outcrops, and it also expands itself into some volcanic areas outside of the Klamath Mountains in the in the Southern Cascades of California. And yeah. there's actually a couple occurrences in Oregon. So yeah, some some cool speciation events in action are you know that's happening now, and of course this is happening all around the world. But it's fun to think about it on yeah. this more local scale. Well, it seems like it's a little more um, kind of plain to see on the on this kind of local scale, where you can look at um, at plants. And I know that Mexico is a huge, huge conifer, um, specifically a pine um, yes. diversity hotspot. And a lot of them, uh, a lot of things I've read have said like, well, we're not sure about the taxonomy between this tree and this tree. And I'm not. It's not clear to me if it is that they are just not studied or if they are. It's as a hotspot, as like a volcano, just spewing out species that we're just seeing something that is kind of in that process of splitting and that to me is something that a lot of people just can't really conceptualize which goes back you know to the very beginnings of taxonomy where you know species are immutable versus having the conception that you know we're we're not at a stopping point we're not we're not you know uh, still right now that we're constantly still within this process of evolution. And if you just use your imagination, you can see those, you know, those two species ripping themselves apart to become, uh, or the one species ripping itself apart to become two. And I just think that's such a fascinating kind of thought experiment to kind of put yourself in. And it seems that the Calamus are a, a perfect place to kind of see that live. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. There's, it's so you're like you said, it's hard to conceptualize or wrap your head around this. But I mean, one example that I like to use is the lodgepole pine. Mm. And if you, you know, during the Pleistocene, there were these major uh, ice sheets that were covering, you know, north of here. And a lot of the species were either the habitat was eliminated, or, you know, if we think about lodgepole pine, their habitat was eliminated. Mm. They were quote unquote pushed south. Yeah. And then with the release of those glaciers, not that long ago, these trees have expanded north, and now what we we see, particularly on the California-Oregon border here in the Klamath Mountains, is sort of this mixing of genes between the higher mountain lodgepole pine mm-hmm. um, and then the, the coastal, what we call beach pine or shore pine, uh, which is the true Pinus contorta contorta. This is the one that was described by Lewis and Clark at the mouth of the Columbia, right? The contorted, twisted, crazy... Yeah you know, beach pine, right? And then the lodgepole, which which is the same, you know, a subspecies, but in the same um, Pinus contorta group, is straight and tall. So what what happens in, particularly in this Josephine ophiolite that I keep talking about, is those two species sort of mix and hybridize. And that's only been occurring, I think, and most people think for about 10,000 years since the the Pleistocene. Wow, and it happens so, I mean, that's slow on our terms, but fast on an evolutionary term, fast on a geologic time scale, where in the last 10,000 years we're seeing these, like, this interaction. It's just fascinating. Yeah, it is. So one question uh, I'm curious about where you land, are you, do you consider yourself, and you don't, you don't, this is not going to hold you one way or another, a lumper or a splitter? 
Oh, good question. <laughs> I'm going to go. <laughs> I don't know. I guess it depends. It really depends on on uh, the species and, and it, okay. you know, it, it, yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to say depends. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. I I have I've I've thought about this a lot and uh, because I have a cone collection and I actively go out and try to find um different species um ever since this uh, a larger trip that I took um over the springtime um and I went down to Utah and found ponderosa pine in Arizona and all these other trees and I'm like, "Man, this I these they got to be different than the normal one that I'm used to. So I collected a cone, then went back and kind of did research and realized that yeah, there's all these different subspecies all over the place, and that kind of pushed me. Uh, and Alex is going to listen to this and be like, "What?" He'll probably say, "I knew this." Uh, it's pushed me to be a splitter strictly because now I can say that my cone collection has five different subspecies of ponderosa pine. It's all the same the same tree, but uh, it's my little trick of making it look like, you know, I've really advanced myself, multiplied by five, this one tree. Yeah, Ponderosa is a crazy story. And, and there's a lot of people that are pushing to split them out into, like you're saying, I think it's five to seven different species. Yeah. Uh, somebody oh, published a paper on that recently. I haven't read it, but uh, they basically proposed that. And you're right. I mean, I think when you start to see them both ecologically and then morphologically with the cones, you lay them next Mm -hmm. to each other. There's arguments to be made for that. Yeah, there really is. And that's, I think, something that I haven't quite done, but I um, I wanted to bring all these cones together and put them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and just see what the differences are. But then I realized a lot of the differences also are in the bark. It's in the morphology. It's in the leaves. So even if the cones look exactly the same, the tree itself with the, the genetics behind it create this different, different phenotype or genotype behind it that cause the, these differences. Yeah. But, you know, the, the other thing to consider sometimes there is it's often soil that can influence that. Like yeah. when you get onto the, some of these serpentines in the Klamath and you find a sugar pine, the cone could be up to 50%, if not more smaller than you might see it on a, on a richer soil type. Yeah. So, now, speaking of that, so I, um, this last spring, actually not this last spring, I'm sorry, four weeks ago, I took on the challenge to try to do the Miracle Mile in uh, the Russian wilderness. And I was looking for you know all the the traits that i'm always constantly thinking of but i did find that the sugar pines specifically were way smaller so i'm curious to hear you to hear you say that it's curious rather yeah you know there's there's also um so you're right like if you're in the northern sierra nevada or the southern cascades of california and you see a sugar pine cone it's Mm -hmm. like a totally different level than than the size of cone you're going to see uh in the klamath mountains And, and I don't know the the real answer to that, but I've I've heard some theories that Native Americans uh, potentially played a role in uh, shaping that because um, they may have selected for larger cones over uh, thousands of years of harvesting those cones. Um, oh, I see. And um, and because there's more seeds, and that was a major food source yeah. for certain populations. So you can't ever rule out the influence of people in the past and some of these selective pressures that uh, uh, may have been put on plants and, and what we then see exhibited today. For um, sure. Now, that all being said, the Northern Sierra is a little bit uh, in the Southern Cascades area where the, the champion sugar pines used to be before they were all cut down. Yeah. Uh, you know, some, some of them are still there, but, you know, that was like the hot spot. And I think it, it has had to do with um, several things. One was the soil, obviously, 
And then the other is sort of this ideal climate with um, often uh, understory burning, which of course could have been initiated by native peoples as well. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, um, one thing that the the very first thing in uh, the um, your new book with the natural history, the very first subject is the the indigenous people um, that had a huge effect and were living in this area for uh, it, what you note is at least 12,000 years based on artifacts that have been found. Um, but what I, I what I really appreciated was that um, the the book started with a, a subject that is usually historically at least relegated to kind of this afterthought like oh well so there were there were people here and they didn't really do a whole lot but you noted that the uh, the the natural history of the site where plants are where plants are not, where certain things uh, have developed, the patterns that we see today, were very likely influenced in a heavy way by the native peoples that lived in this area through fire, through harvesting, and through things like this. Did you did you find anything that was um, that is? I don't want to say changed your mind, but at least kind of like something that you read through and you're like, man, this is way more intense than I, I had ever really really thought about, or perhaps what a lot of people would give it credit for. Yeah, well, what's ama- both amazing and and great about the Klamath Mountains is the first peoples are still here; they're still present, and and their mm-hmm. voice is being heard again uh, after a hundred years of sort of suppression and mm-hmm. um, you know all the the bad things we hear about. They are now becoming um, the active land managers that they used to be. Um, there's fire management that goes on. There is, uh, you know, these harvesting sites that are still tended in the mountains and, and they visit them for the bear grass or, or for the geophytes that they might harvest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what really blew my mind as I, as I got into this work with the, some of the members of the Karuk and the Yurok and the Hoopa tribes here along the, the Klamath River in particular was seeing the, how the landscape has what it you could have what it was right a hundred years ago when they mm. were allowed to burn ridge tops for travel routes, um, and what it is today with these. And, and I visited one of these routes that um, was a major thoroughfare for the Karuk um, just last spring, and it's now overgrown with manzanita and and small Douglas firs, and it's almost unnavigable. Whereas mm. you know a hundred years ago that might have been burned. Uh, every few years just to keep it open as a travel route. So just that sort of level of uh, different, you know, we humans do a pretty good job of managing the land, right? And maybe not always <laughs> in a positive way. Yeah. But to think think about how people before colonizers arrived, how those people managed the land, why they did it. And that's um, just been very eye-opening for me. There's not really a such thing as wilderness in the Klamath Mountains. It's always been managed by people uh well always you know 10 since the end of the pleistocene right yeah so it's it's fascinating to see the vegetation in a different way because of that yeah we're we're seeing this a lot um alex and i we also did a, a recent interview with um perry sassnet who did a podcast called headwaters out of glacier national park and they interviewed the first peoples that were there um and uh, not they didn't go back in time. I, I didn't mean to insinuate that, but they went, of course, and talked to the uh, tribal members, and they said the same exact thing. They're like, "There's no wilderness. There's no like you know untrodden by man kind of idea. Um, it's just maybe now we've kicked everyone out and stopped and kind of tried to preserve it in a certain way that is is kind of false in a certain certain regard." And 
So we're, I, I think it's nice to hear that from you as well, because it seems to me that there is, um, that it's, it's building momentum, momentum in a way that people are finally listening, like you said, and and kind of accepting that we are not the first people to be here. We did not discover these these plants, and we are not even the first to manage them in any significant regard. Yeah, the, the, what's also fascinating and, and important is that Western science is blending itself in with this traditional ecological knowledge within the Klamath Mountains, and uh, that's excellent. And they're and they're they're evolving together. You know, which is a positive. Yeah, it's a, it seems to me the only way to actually to to move move things forward and and make any kind of positive change would be evolving together, like you noted. Exactly. So um, the the one thing that um, regardless of of how it is that we do have these amazing wilderness areas, um, I noted that I just tried to do the or the Miracle Mile in the Russian wilderness. There's also the Trinity Alps and Yoliboli. And you visited all of these places, and you found all of these these trees. Um, I went to the the Miracle Mile, and I specifically was like, I gotta go find you know all these unique and interesting uh, things. So, would you be willing to kind of give us a, a quick rundown? And I'm sure you get this all the time. I've seen it on your website. People just responding and saying, "Hey, I tried to do this. I did try to do it now, but now that I got you." Uh, could you tell everyone a little bit about what the, the Miracle Mile is and, and why this is unique here in the Kalamaths, um, specifically of anywhere else in the world? Sure. Yeah, so this was a, this idea of the Miracle Mile was cooked up by a couple of forestry, um, one forestry, one biology professor at, at the former Humboldt State. We're now a Cal Poly uh, as yeah. of this year. But um, back in the late 60s, my, my friend and mentor, John Sawyer, was contacted by Ledyard Stebbins from Berkeley, a fa- famous evolutionary biologist and biogeographer. And Ledyard said, hey, I've heard a report of a um, Engelman spruce in California, and here's where it is. And he told him about this place called Blake's Fork along Russian Creek. Mm-hmm. And so Sawyer went there and found it. He was like, first documented Engelman spruce. There it is. Documented by Western science in, uh, in, in uh, the, the Klamath basically in the heart of the Klamath Mountains. And so he became a little bit obsessed with that spot. And the next summer they went to the other side, um, Sugar Creek, which is where yeah. you went in from, the, the east side of the Russian wilderness. The, what's cool about the Russians is it's this divide. They call it the Salmon Mountains. And it's a divide between the Salmon River and the Scott River. And gotcha. again, it's a complex knot. So with this north-south trending uh, high elevation divide, you kind of get this... Um, rain shadow effect you also get the influence of the great basin there where you but you also have the influence of the cooler coast so they went to the other side and mm-hmm. hiked up and um john's uh co-explorer and co-worker dale thornburg found a tree and he said you know john this is a subalpine fir and it took him a half an hour you know john told <laughs> me this story before he passed away it took him a half an hour to convince one of the best uh, conifer taxonomist in the state that it was a subalpine fir. That's how difficult subalpine fir are to actually discern in the Klamath Mountains because we yeah. have so many firs. But it turned out Thornburg was right. They did a hike up and over another ridge and they found whitebark pine and foxtail pine. And when they mm-hmm. got to uh, Little Duck Lake, they laid out their map and they said, you know, within, if we're going to create a little arbitrary border, but within this square mile, we've got 17 species of conifers. And uh, that was when the Miracle Mile was born. That was in the early 70s. And as I was writing Conifer Country, I heard from uh, this guy, Richard Moore, who owns a gravel pit in the Scott Valley. And he mm-hmm. um, 
he didn't even know how to do email. He's like, you know, <laughs> finds my phone number and leaves me a message. Yeah. And he says, I found an 18th conifer in the Miracle Mile. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I didn't, some gravel operator, you know, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but, right, sure. you know, I went over and I, and I uh, stopped in. He got off his dump truck, jumped into my car, didn't even bring a water bottle. And charged me up this mountain slope into this little granite alcove. And sure enough, man, I'm 500 to 1,000 year old Western junipers were growing in this pocket. And there's like 50 of them. And it's such an like sort of isolated pocket that, you know, from the other side where Sawyer and Thurnberg were looking of the mountain, um, they would never have been able to find them. But, you know, if we, we, that it fit right within that square mile and we got our 18th conifer. So Man. we're holding out that this is the most diverse temperate square mile of, of conifers in, yeah. in the world, you know? I, and I that, read... It, it, go ahead. Oh, I, no, no, please go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, it's been challenged. You know, you could probably you could draw a square mile in uh, a variety of different ways, right? But this is a mile yeah. by a mile square. And it's been challenged by somebody on Mount Rainier, but I their their mile that. was maybe a quarter mile wide and whatever it needed to be long to fit in these 18 conifers and i've never actually seen that list but i've gotten an email from somebody and who knows in china and the mountains of china i mean that's there's some serious diversity over there yeah but uh it's fun it's a fun little project it is yeah honestly if you uh you i would love it if you forward that email of what those conifers are and where they could be i'd love to do a, a transect in uh um outside of or in Maori near National Park or anywhere and just try and find those. So just in case you need a buddy, just let me know. You got my email. Okay. Yeah, maybe we could go look at it next summer. That'd be fun. That would be I'll, I'll dig it out. I think it was one of my old, it's my old Yahoo email. So I'll have to log oh, gotcha. into that after years, but I'll, I'll track that down. <laughs> Oh, that sounds wonderful. Well, I remember, uh, so when I was looking for these these trees, I found 17 of them, um, and I was very excited. I don't think I found them all within a square mile, but I didn't actually, I took a, a note of where they are, and I, I logged them on my GPS, and nice. so I, I haven't gone back to see um, exactly where they are, but of course, you know, you got to find the right one in the right place, potentially, to make it this nice, uh, discrete unit. Exactly. But so which I, one did you miss of your, you got 17 out of 18. Is it the Western Juniper? It was the Western Juniper. Yeah. yeah. I could not get yeah. the Western Juniper. There it is a, a sapling at the trailhead, but that's definitely yes. not within the, the I, I love it that you note that because yeah. I took a, yeah. I took a bunch of videos. Alex uh, will at some point get these for me and we'll turn them into a fun video. Um, and I specifically went back to the trailhead and took a video of that one little sapling and said, here's my token juniper. I made it, but I don't think this quite counts. Yeah, but it's cool because, you know, the junipers, when Cooper's ACE, right, and, and I'll just do a quick little side note here. Cooper's ACE are within that family, you know, talking redwoods uh-huh. and. Oh, yeah. Um, they're basically like super dominant in a small area, right? Yeah, except for the except for the junipers the junipers have this circumboreal um distribution because they have that berry seed and birds transport their seeds for them um so they're that one exception within cooper's ac and that's why this probably some uh towns in solitaire or a flock of them or whatever carried some of these western juniper seeds into the klamath mountains uh, since the end of the pleistocene from the great basin and now we have western juniper thanks to these birds 
Oh, so. I'm so thankful for those birds. But now that you say there's 500, 1,000 year old junipers that I miss, I got to go back and find these. That is, uh, I, I think I have some idea where they're at and why I, I got them wrong. I didn't cross all the way over into uh, Sugar Lake, I think is what it yeah, is. Yeah, you have to you have to go up Sugar Creek to get there. Okay. And- yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take yeah. you, man. Yeah, that sounds let me great. Know. We'll go. I'll, I'll let you know the next time I'm down in that area, and then we can we can make it happen. Um, but yeah, this is a that is I think one of the most exciting things, and anyone can go do this. They can just go walk up. There's lists on your website of where to of what the species are. Other people have put them elsewhere, um, and it's just such a beautiful a beautiful place to hike into. You go from like this kind of scrubby oak douglas fir area and you just climb and climb and climb until you're in this subalpine area with trees that i just would never have expected to find in this little this little kind of alcove of a of a um a cove kind of shaped area it was so beautiful yeah it's reminiscent of the sierra nevada and other you know sort of clean granite mountain ranges of the west and yeah uh, yeah it's also fun because you know you're you it, it, there are some steep parts but those are the terminal moraines of the old glaciers so you're kind yeah. of walking on these flat spots and then all of a sudden you got to switch back up this terminal moraine and when you mm-hmm. get to the top of the terminal moraine a whole new plant community shows up so it's yeah. really a, a neat study and um and plant distributions as well Oh, so, so curious. If anyone is out there listening and you want to do any of these things, uh, definitely find yourself in the, the Klamath Mountains. Um, that is, uh, yeah, it's just such a, such a gorgeous area. And I, I think we here in Oregon don't really appreciate them that much because it, they're just, they're so far south and they seem so, for me, so covered in poison oak. That's one of the big things that <laughs> has kept me from going to a lot of these places. But... Yeah. Yeah, but what's I, nice, it, what's nice, I'll just add, I totally please. agree with you. The low elevations often have some nasty poison oak, but they are those trails that you're going to find the poison oak are often along some beautiful river. Oh, they are epic swimming holes. So, anyway, yeah. the, the Illinois you. River, I think, is, is the one that I did uh, the most recently, and that was uh. It was it was like dancing because it had just rained, so all of the new growth from poison oak had kind of like gotten sodden, so they kind of bent over into the path, and we were like walking around it as if we're like trying to avoid lasers in a movie or something. <laughs> but it was it was still stunningly gorgeous. Like if you can just pull your eyes up for one second and you can find all these different plants that um, you just never know about. I think the closest thing we have here is Leech Botanical Garden in Portland um, is focused on Siskiyou species. Um, I think there's uh, another leech thing down in the... Uh, oh, I think... Calameopsis. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say... talking okay. about Calameopsis leechiana. Did you, you see go. that along the Illinois River Trail? Not that I know of, but I wasn't looking uh, particularly close at that time. Uh, I, at that moment, I was really looking at the trees. Um, but now uh, now that I've gone down there, I've seen the trees. Now I can start looking further for all these more unique species. But um, uh, several of my friends go down there on an almost weekly basis to just find all these incredibly unique small herbs and small flowers and idea them at, down to the tiniest subspecies and varieties. They're really dedicated. Nice. Yeah, there's a lot to see and explore. Yeah. Well, so speaking of that, if you do want to go uh, explore and see any of these things, uh, Michael, give us a quick rundown of um, your newest book, uh, which tells all about the um, natural history, but also books that say, hey, here's how you can go find all these trees and all these things. 
Sure. Well, you know, this Klamath Natural History is obviously a, a, a culminating experience of many years having explored this mountain range. And so it's less about specific places and more about the sort of the broad scale of yeah. the region, you know, as seen through natural history. And that includes rivers. It includes uh, first peoples, as you mentioned, you know, soils. So it's it's a it's a broad treatment. Oh but um, in the other books, we do include more specific destinations. And you mentioned conifers of the Pacific Slope earlier. I think I have 50-some destinations to see conifers, and that's all mm-hmm. through California, Oregon, and Washington. Um, Field Guide to Manzanitas, we also have specific spots to go visit these amazing Manzanitas from Baja, California, north up into Oregon. Um, and then conifer country is... in probably the one of the first guides that I ever have seen that uh, really is about both integrating natural history of the conifers, but also the hikes to see them. And yeah. uh, I, I have 27 hikes, specific hikes to get into the Klamath. And, and typically what I did when I picked those hikes is I picked places that um, weren't necessarily uh, the, the rare kind of hidden gems, yeah, uh, but sure. they were places that you know, people visit and they might need more stewardship, right? They might need somebody to be like, hey, you know, let's uh, leave no trace here when you're at the trailhead. So it's it's places that people already know about. Gotcha. Or it's it, there's also a couple of drives to go through the Klamath Mountains. And, and the last hike in the book I'll just mention is my uh, Bigfoot Trail. And the Bigfoot Trail is a 360-mile trail to see all... 32 species of conifers hey. in the Klamath Mountains. It's a, it's a conifer treasure hunt. So yeah. if you're really hardcore, talk to me about the Bigfoot Trail. We'll get you out on that next summer. So. For sure. Yeah, I think I can do it. I'll see if Alex will, will give me you know a couple months off, but I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure I could do it. I'll bring him down with me. We'll, we'll, we'll do a couple uh, in-the-field episodes and things like that. Nice. But that is something uh, that I think is super unique about the books that you put out, um, at least those, those first two, is that... You you basically don't just say there are these trees out here. You say go see these trees that are out here. That I, that just makes it so much more of an interesting experience for me because I I want to go see these trees. Um, and I think having showing people where these things are, um, and how to get out there and touch them and see them and ex- interact with them, I think is is a, a little bit more of a fuller, richer experience than just saying yeah here's an ID guide. These trees grow in this area. Uh, but then if you want to go see them, it makes it way more difficult unless you're uh, you know very experienced with that spot in order to go find them so i really appreciate that you've put that much effort yeah thanks and, and it really has to do again with connecting people to the natural world understanding yeah. that deep time ecology particularly through the conifers and in, in the conifer bookcase but you know why are they here how long have they been here what's their relationship and uh, i think that just makes us um care about the natural world more as a, as it does, a species. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly right. And that's, that's something that we here at the show are trying to push a lot is basically like, here's why each one of these individual trees has some unique story about it. And each one hopefully gets gets each person a little bit more close to, to a tree so that they can either identify it or go see it or think about the next tree they see. And even if it's not the one that they think it is, then they're at least wondering and looking at it more than just a passive glance and more so with the conifers because they are they're kind of this extra level unique i think and well i think we can all agree on that yeah definitely yeah nice work on your end too i think that's true y'all are doing a great job promoting a a sense of place 
we're really trying our best. And it's, it's sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we, uh, we have to regret errors, but yeah, generally we're, we're really trying to have fun and, and use our, uh, our platform to try to try to do the best we can. So, um, again, uh, Michael, thank you very much for coming on, uh, to the Arboretum and chatting with us. And so where can, uh, we find your work? Backcountrypress.com. That's where all my books have been published. And I also have a blog that I occasionally update at michaelkaufman.net where I uh, explore plant plants and where they live. And I just put up a new blog post. We were just in the southeast in South Carolina and went to this cool bald cypress swamp. So I just put up a new post about that. I think I actually saw that post uh, um, on Instagram, I think. I, nice. uh, Thank you. that was, yeah, that was some of the places that, uh, I visited this last spring as well and went to see, uh, we were in Okefenokee National Wildlife Reserve in Georgia and saw these cypresses and these, uh, this in, insane other kind of ecology that is, you know, you'd have to have a whole other lifetime to get into over there. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool. It's hot and buggy, but <laughs> yeah, I lots of and, alligators, uh, <laughs> lots of alligators. Yeah. Uh, my partner Hannah was not stoked about that while well, I was constantly enjoying it so oh well um well well, thanks for having me yeah of course well we'll hopefully have you back here and um we will talk about the next thing you're doing or in the next conifer that we find down here so um michael kaufman thank you very much we'll post everything um about this on our um on our notes so that we can make sure that people are connected with uh, you backcountry press um otherwise thanks very much for stopping by with us of course it's good being here